chances are pretty good that your doctor doesn't understand what it means to live with a disability. 82% of doctors felt that people with significant disability have worse quality of life than other people. Dr. Lisa Iazzoni is a Harvard researcher who studies healthcare for people with disabilities. Her work has uncovered a number of troublesome attitudes, including the belief of many physicians that they're not able to take care of people with disabilities. A lot of doctors just don't really think about this. A lot of physicians are very sure that their training gives them special knowledge, special powers, special understanding. And so they may not kind of pause for a second to say, oh, you know, since I grew up in this extremely ableist society, maybe I have these attitudes myself. On today's program, Physician Attitudes and Disability. You're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast, which comes to you from the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Hi, it's Sean Collins. I'm glad you're listening. More than 60 million Americans have disabilities, and there's growing evidence that they experience healthcare disparities. There are many reasons for the disparities, but one that doesn't get much attention is the attitude of physicians. Dr. Lisa Iazzoni is a researcher at the Health Policy Research Center at Mass General Hospital. She's been studying the healthcare people with disability can access. And 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Dr. Iazzoni's research points to inequitable care and the role physician bias contributes to it. One finding, more than four out of five physicians believe people with significant disability have worse quality of life than other people. What you're talking about, Sean, is a survey that we did um, in late 2019 and early 2020 about the experiences with and perceptions of caring for people with disabilities among outpatient physicians in seven different specialties. And this work was motivated by 20 plus years that I'd spent interviewing people with different types of disabilities who'd uniformly told me exactly what you just said, that their physicians often did not seem to respect or understand their lives, often had ableist attitudes, often really did not know how to care for them. And so I decided in about 2017 or so that it was time to actually ask doctors. And that for me was the top line finding that after we adjusted for um, the fact that we conducted a national survey, 82% um, of doctors felt that people with significant disability have worse quality of life than other people. And that becomes even more alarming, I think, when you pair it with the fact that there's lots of evidence that people with disability are receiving substandard care. Another thing, top line finding, that we reported along with that statistic was that only 42% of doctors feel strongly confident that they can provide equal quality of care to their patients with disabilities as they provide to other patients. That's kind of alarming. Um, you're not going to want to go to a physician who's not strongly confident that they can provide equal quality of care, but that is nonetheless what physicians told us. 
And about 56% of physicians, only 56% of physicians strongly welcome people with disabilities into their practice. And so along with kind of not feeling that they're able to take care of them equitably, they also don't welcome people with disabilities into their practice as much as you would hope to see. And am I reading the data correctly that you seem to be finding that the physicians who are dealing with a very broad patient population, including the poor, including those with disability, those are the physicians who feel that they can do it and can do it well. We did do a national survey. And so what we found in our survey was what's represented by the physician population nationwide. And we defined serving um, a socioeconomically disadvantaged population as having um, more than 35% of their patients as either self-pay or on Medicaid. One of the things that was especially kind of surprising to us is that we didn't see, for example, that physicians at academic medical centers felt any better at doing this um, than other physicians did. And in fact, there were relatively few physician characteristics that were really strongly associated with any of our findings, which suggests that these are pretty widespread attitudes and experiences. You know, sometimes women would be better than men and, and, and so on, but um, there weren't any like global trends that would make me say, if you're a disabled person, you should definitely go see a woman doctor in a community health center who's, you know, there, there just weren't any kind of characteristics like that. The other thing that was especially disappointing to me is that I had made sure that in the end of the survey where we asked physicians their demographic information, um, you know, their age and their um, gender identity, et cetera, we also asked them whether they had a disability or whether any of their family members had a disability. And the reason that you don't see that reported in any of our findings is that answers to that question actually did not affect any of the results that we found, which was really surprising to me. I would have thought that physicians who had personal experiences with disability would have very different attitudes, but they didn't. That finding is surprising. And I'm wondering about, I, I can't remember from my statistics class, so many years ago, what it's called, but isn't there a phenomenon where people often when they're being surveyed answer in a way that they think the, with data that the researcher wants to hear? Yes, it's called a positive response bias. And we actually believe that we did not have a positive response bias here because physicians were so willing to tell us attitudes that you would think they would understand our discriminatory and ableist. Mm -hmm. That's why I was so troubled by that 82% for many, many reasons actually, but that's one of the main reasons is because it said to me that these physicians feel pretty confident that they're right about this, mm -hmm. that they are correct that people with disabilities have worse quality of life than other people. And so therefore, 82% of them are willing to say that. And of course, um, we don't want to overstate um, this situation because 
I'm sure that you know, and I certainly know, situations where disability is profoundly painful, physically devastating, mentally just really, um, really excruciating to live with. Um, but for the vast majority of us who have had disabilities, many of us for decades, we just kind of get along with things. And so the fact that 82% of physicians, again, feel that our quality of life is worse was an especially troubling finding to have at the height of the pandemic. <laughs> because these findings were coming through when we were still at a point where we were concerned about were we going to have enough ventilators? You know, were we going to have enough intensive care unit beds? And to see these findings expressing such discriminatory attitudes at this time, when if you remember back, we were worried about people with disabilities getting put to the end of the line. Yeah. It was really very worrisome. Yeah. What, what do you make of this? What do you make of this evident bias among your fellow physicians? After the paper was published in February of 2021, reporting on that 82% of doctors, I got an email from an ALS support group saying, would you come to one of our sessions and just talk to us about what these findings mean and um, you know, how we should maybe think about our interactions with doctors based on these findings? And so I said, sure, you know, I'm happy. I'm always happy to participate in situations where I feel I can be helpful. And so it was going to be organized such that somebody with ALS was going to lead the session. And then we were going to engage in a conversation after that individual presented their own personal experiences. And so the appointment was made for me to kind of have a Zoom call with that person the day before so we could get to know each other a little bit and, um, and just kind of get a rapport going. And so I spoke to him and he self-identified as obviously having ALS, using wheelchair, but also being a physician. We started talking about why would we find this? And my response was that doctors are people too. You know, you as a person with ALS are also a person. You've grown up in a society where you've heard ableist attitudes your entire time. And I said, a lot of doctors just don't really think about this. A lot of physicians are very sure that their training gives them special knowledge, special powers, special understanding. Um, and so they may not kind of pause for a second to say, oh, you know, since I grew up in this extremely ableist society, maybe I have these attitudes myself. And I suggested that he might want to look into something called the implicit association test, which is a test for implicit bias that people might have. It's a test that a lot of physicians are now asked to take to explore whether they have implicit biases relating to race and ethnicity. So this test does exist. It happens to be somewhat ableist. Um, you have to actually move a cursor. And so um, you have to have the manual dexterity, which obviously I don't have, you know, to be able to do this test. But the next day, 
Um, before we were going to start the session, I got on early with this physician and he was shell-shocked because he had gone online, had taken this implicit association test and had found that he was very biased against people with disabilities. <laughs> Here he is, a person with a disability, a physician, a wheelchair user, but he's biased according to this test in an implicit way. He has a preference for people who aren't disabled. And again, you know, I just said to him, don't beat yourself up too much about this. Just be aware of this, you know, just be aware that you, like other people who've kind of grown up in these United States, um, have these kind of biases. And so just be aware of it in yourself and kind of check yourself at times when you realize, uh-oh, why am I saying that? Why am I thinking that? Let me just pause for a second and think it through a little bit more. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I guess I wonder what the next step is for, for medical education or for, for associations of physicians. I mean, how do you raise awareness of this? That is an excellent question. And obviously education has to be part of the answer here. However, let me just say that, um, that if we have physicians training young doctors, 82% of them having these biased attitudes, that there's a hidden curriculum that people often talk about in medical schools. Um, it's talked about in the context of race, especially. Um, you know, that just simply by the way that physicians who are attending or preceptors interact with their students, they can implicitly be conveying the same kind of stigmatized or discriminatory attitudes. So we have to be very deliberate in what the curriculum would be for trainees. And there are people out there, there's an alliance for healthcare competency development or something like that, that is run out of the Ohio State University um, with Susan Haverkamp and others um, that is looking across health professions for curricula that could really train um, new healthcare professionals about how to have um, an appropriate approach and understanding of the lived experience of disability um, in the context that they need it for caring for patients. And interestingly, they actually have people with disabilities involved in helping design that curriculum, which is terrific. However, um, the point that I often make is that to train a new internist takes seven years. Okay, from start to finish, you know, you've got four years of medical school and then three years of internship and residency. And so if we wait to train our workforce, you know, it's seven year little aliquots here. We're going to be waiting for quite a while until we have a comprehensive workforce of physicians who are trained in basic disability competency. And so I know that this might be somewhat controversial, but I think that this needs to go to continuing medical education, that practicing physicians actually need to talk about this 
Um, I'm not exactly sure what a curriculum would be for that. But for example, in my state, which is Massachusetts, to get your medical license um, renewed, you have to show credits in different types of continuing medical education. And one of those types is like a risk management credit. And that includes things like looking at implicit biases and racism and, and so on. And so I think adding um, disability to that would be good. Another very basic thing I think we need to do is make sure that medical settings, practice settings are now accessible. You know, if physicians know that they have a height adjustable exam table and that they have a wheelchair accessible weight scale and that they may have, um, you know, access to interpreters for their patients who are deaf and want that kind of accommodation or have, you know, virtual um, sign language interpretation uh, available easily for them if their patients who are deaf are willing to use that accommodation, you know, virtual um, interpretation. That will put them in an environment where they are forced to kind of confront the need to accommodate disabled patients. And one of the other findings that I was just really blown away by was that and here, our survey was done in late 2019, early 2020, so about 30 years after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so was that 71% of physicians did not correctly answer the question about how reasonable accommodations are determined in a clinical setting. And the correct answer to that, as you know, is it needs to be a dialogue. It needs to be a collaboration. You know, the clinician needs to talk to the patient with a disability and they need to kind of iterate together to decide what the reasonable accommodation should be. There's slight differences between Title II and Title III practices, you know, private versus public practices. Um, but basically both types of practices require a collaborative approach. And physicians didn't understand this. I'm glad to hear you bring up the role that patients play in sort of re-educating the profession. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with a bunch of deaf activists related to healthcare for people with um, who are hard of hearing or deaf. And um, the takeaway from that was that the deaf patient had to help educate the physician. And um, as much as you don't want to burden people who are being disadvantaged with the burden of re-educating the rest of the population, if we have to wait seven years for every new generation of, of physician to come out of training, um, perhaps that's one of the most powerful things that could happen is that people start speaking up in their doctor's office. Absolutely. And um, I had probably what I think is the final paper from the survey study was accepted about six weeks ago or so, or eight weeks ago. And um, a pre- pre-version of it might be out right now in that kind of looks like a typescript rather than a published paper. But this was the 
um, paper where we talked about the survey findings relating to deaf and hard of hearing patients. Guess what? <laughs> you know, 50% of physicians usually or always simply talk louder to their patients who are deaf or hard of hearing. It was just astonishing. About 50% of them have never used a sign language interpreter that they bring into their own practice. Almost 70% of them have never used remote sign language interpreters. They just simply talk louder. And another 50% also usually or always just talk to the patient's quote unquote companion, the person who a patient might bring to the visit with them. So I, I knew from um, having done a little research on this that one of the most common reasons for filing a lawsuit under the Americans with Disabilities Act in the context of healthcare is the lack of effective accommodations for hearing um, for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. And here we showed why that is. You know, physicians are just talking louder or talking to companions. What about other sorts of disability? For instance, the height adjustable exam table. If someone had difficulty safely making it onto an exam table, if they were to tell the physician's assistant or the physician, you know, if you had a table that would adjust its height, this would be easier for me. That sort of feedback might be useful. I remember I, I fell once when my cat ran under my legs. I'm not going to say I tripped over her, but, and I had to go see an orthopedist. And um, I had to, you know, for the exam, had to get up onto the exam table. And I said to the orthopedist, not to the doctor himself, and it wasn't him, um, you might want to think about getting high adjustable exam tables because I'm not sure how I'm going to get up there. And he said, oh, such things exist you know, didn't even know um, that such things exist. I think that, you know, what we found in our survey um, was that 42% of physicians usually or always use height adjustable exam tables for their patients with significant mobility limitations. However, that did vary substantially by specialty. Primary care doctors, only about a third, and specialists, almost 50%. I think that um, when I'm asked about this topic, I always say it's a win-win-win situation because doctors will always say, oh, it's too expensive. And my response is, you know, it's going to be safer for your patients. It's going to give them a safer opportunity to independently transfer or transfer with some assistance. Um, number two, it's going to be safer for your staff because one of the professions with the highest rate of occupational injuries are practice assistants, certified nursing assistants, nurses who are being required now to help patients transfer. And also physicians come in different heights, you know? So there are some physicians who are of shorter stature than other physicians. And so if you have a height adjustable exam table, then you can set the exam table at an ergonomically satisfactory height for yourself to be able to do the best exam that you possibly can for your patient and probably result in less fatigue for you over the course of a day. Um, and so I think that 
it is true that height adjustable exam tables are a little bit more expensive, you know, about 50% more expensive than um, other exam tables. But when you think about the benefits of maybe not having your practice staff be out on injury or short-term disability because they got injured seeing a patient, or and you think about the benefits to yourself and just frankly, the humanistic benefits to your patients with disabilities, it seems to me that that is a price that is worth paying. And it's also, frankly, part of your overhead. It also acknowledges the demographic reality that the population is aging and the percentage of the population that is, you know, over the age of 65 is increasing exponentially as the boomers age. So this is a huge slice of the demographic and to ignore their needs seems ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. When my practice finally got a height adjustable exam table, I very innocently asked the practice assistant as she was putting me into the exam room with a height adjustable exam table one day, so what do your patients think about this? And so I'm going to use her language. You know, this is not the language that I would necessarily use, but she said, quote unquote, the little old ladies love it. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Iazzoni of the Health Policy Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. You'll find links to some of her research on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, that's where you can do that as well. Dr. Iazzoni, you've been doing this research now for a generation. Has it been satisfying? I feel deep gratitude um, for the generosity of all the people with disabilities who've talked to me and told me their stories. And that is why I'm kind of a classic mixed methods researcher. Okay, I love publishing numbers when I can, but I also love publishing stories. And so I try to the extent that I can um, to pair a piece about um, about what is happening out there to people with disabilities that has numeric um, uh, findings to it with other pieces that talk about the lived experience of having to confront that exam table, you know, that doesn't adjust um, for you to get on and off of it. And so I feel um, I always like to do my own interviews. A lot of researchers have research assistants who do their interviews, but I love doing the interviews. And I probably don't use the best research techniques because I will reveal that I myself is disabled and disabled often during the interviews. Um, and, uh, you know, that just often gives us an interviewee and me a kind of opportunity to say, oh, yeah, I've been there. I've known, I know what that's like, <laughs> you know, and so it kind of moves the conversation along in a way that is really productive in a research from a research mode. But it also, again, is just interpersonally very satisfying that I can give voice to people who often have not had a voice or had their voices heard. You have multiple sclerosis, is that right? I've had it for 46 years. And you've mentioned that that you use a wheelchair. Can I ask, when was the diagnosis in the course of your medical education? 
that's an extremely fraught question. Um, okay, so I am an older person and I was diagnosed with MS before MRI scanners were used for human beings, okay? They were used in labs experimentally, but um, I actually had four years of relapsing and remitting symptoms that because I was young, I was invincible, I was invulnerable, um, they would go away and I was busy. I didn't pay any attention to. And so um, the symptoms started with my first semester at medical school actually, and that was in September of 1980, um, or my symptoms really exacerbated, got exacerbated then. They, they'd been in existence for four years previous to that time, but when I started medical school, I couldn't ignore them anymore. Um, I would do things like bump into trees and bump into cars, and that is something that you kind of have to pay attention to. And so I was diagnosed at the end of my first semester at Harvard Medical School. That's when I was diagnosed. How is it for people in medical school now with disability? Can you see what the landscape looks like for young physicians in training who themselves have disability? I paused perhaps too quickly in my answer to the last question because I need to make extremely clear that I experienced pretty major discrimination and my medical school refused to write a letter for me to apply for an internship or residency. And so therefore, although I did everything I was supposed to do in my four years and passed all my classes, um, I was never able to go on to become a practicing physician. And that was, um, you know, that decision was made in the summer of 1983 that the medical school told me that they wouldn't give me the opportunity to go on to train. So that was seven years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I think nowadays um, that it still is hard. Um, there are certainly exceptions to that. And this is one of the things that I don't know whether you've sometimes noticed that that people will talk about a unicorn type of person. You know, oh, it's not a problem to have people with disabilities. I know so-and-so who is a doctor and has a disability. Well, just because you know one person, often those people are extraordinary people because they've had to deal with incredible barriers. I do think that there is change afoot though. Um, I remember, you know, during the pandemic of Zoom, basically, which is what my life was like, you know, um, being at home on Zoom the entire time, that gave me opportunities to talk to people around the country a lot more than I would if I had to travel. And so I remember once getting, um, a, maybe about a year and a half ago, getting an email from somebody who self-identified as a medical student at a Southern California medical school who was a wheelchair user and doing not only an MD, but an MD-PhD. And I thought, whoa, how cool is that? You know, and this student was putting together a session for students about being a student with a disability. And what I'm finding is that the impetus for training and talking about this is actually coming from students with disabilities. 
However, I don't know if you know about the October 2022 issue of Health Affairs, the Health Policy Journal, that had a theme issue in October about disability. There was a really great article written by Lisa Meeks and her collaborators. Lisa, you may know, is somebody who's done a lot of work on disability and medical education, talking about um, the fact that physicians with disabilities and trainees with disabilities report a lot more abuse from other people than do non-disabled patients. Um, and, you know, I, I remember from my days in medical school, which were a long time ago, you know, now the early 80s, very different, you know, um, being viewed as um, a patient, you know, and so being called dear by, you know, the physicians that were my attendings, oh dear, um, you're here, are you looking for a physician or, you know, your appointment? No, I'm here, I'm a medical student, um, you know, but that's still happening now. And so it's still happening in 2022. And so I think that it's a mixed bag, that it's better, but it is nowhere near what it needs to be. A little while ago, you talked about that this may, this sort of re-education may rightly fall in the realm of continuing education. And um, are you aware of any curricula that are out there now being used is 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 anyone kind of doing it right in terms of affecting change? You know, as I mentioned to you, the Ohio State group has this amazing collaborative to develop curriculum. And there are places around the country, medical schools around the country that are deliver, developing curricula, again, often motivated by the students around disability. I have not seen one for CME, but of course, I'm not somebody who needs CME credits since I'm not a licensed doctor, <laughs> you know, so there might be something out there. Um, I do know that I was asked once um, during the pandemic to give a Zoom lecture for CME um, around disability, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. This can actually happen. Um, and so I think that Again, this is going to need to be an impetus from the profession um, to come and say, we are willing to do this because imposing this on doctors would be very, very challenging to do. Dr. Lisa Iazzoni is at the Health Policy Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Iazzoni, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Sean. I've enjoyed our talk. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Find us on the web at www.hearmenowpodcast.org. Our program is produced by Scott Acourt and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians, Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolovska elliott Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I invite you to join us in two weeks for a conversation about war trauma, especially the toll on women and children, as we're seeing in Ukraine, 
And we'll talk about the hope of recovery for civilians who survive warfare at their doorstep and the crucial role women play in reconciliation and peace building. It's a sobering topic, but it's an important one, and I hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.